Jerusalem, they, as uh, the people, sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates of the wall. And then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. And after uh, after them went Hoshaiah and half the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, and the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them, and at the fountain gate they went up straight before them, the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east." Thus is read the inspired and errant word of God. You may be seated. It was a day to remember all over the world. It was May 8th, 1945. Also known as VE Day or Victory in Europe Day. Massive crowds spilled out onto the streets of city and towns over all the world celebrating the unconditional surrender and defeat of Nazi Germany. Some of the celebrations were huge. Moscow, in Moscow, the, the, the people, the Russians, uh, danced and sang in the streets. In London, hundreds of thousands gathered around Buckingham Palace and, old, and Big Ben, where King George VI and Queen Elizabeth accompanied Winston Churchill with words of celebration with the people. A little Queen Elizabeth II, who is, by the way, now Queen of England, walked among the crowds incognito, singing the praises of the victory of the Allies. In the United States, huge celebrations broke out in cities and towns. And May 8th just happened to be the birthday of President uh, Harry Truman, Truman, as a result, dedicated the uh, Allied victory to Franklin Roosevelt and said it was the best birthday he had ever had. The excitement and joy of that victory was palpable everywhere around the world. A great task, a great war had been brought to completion in Europe. The hard work, the sacrifice, even the death led to an extraordinary expression of celebration over an event that changed history. Well, folks, mass celebrations over a great victory, over a great work of God, is exactly what we get into today here in Nehemiah chapter 12. 
For the entirety of this book, the people of God had been working hard to rebuild the wall of the city of Jerusalem, which had effectively been a ghost town for the prior hundred years. And they did this in the midst of some incredible pushback externally with threats of surrounding nations, even internally with ethical issues and internal politics pushing back on the process. Yet the wall had been completed in 52 days, amazingly. The, the cool thing about this is years earlier, even decades earlier, the temple had been finished in Jerusalem. And the result of all this hard work was that they had actually begun the process of rebuilding the entire city. And led by the able and godly hand of Nehemiah, the city was in process of being restored. And as we saw last week in chapter 11, people and leaders were starting to gather in the city and repopulate the city so that it was more than just a ghost town. It was a living place with people and spiritual life. So a lot of amazing stuff has happened in this book that we've looked at throughout the summer and even into this fall over 11, now 12 chapters, especially with the rebuilding of this wall, you have to ask a question. How did the Jews as a whole respond to the great work of God in rebuilding the city, the wall, and the people themselves? Did they stop, and, or rather, did they stop and say, hey, what's next? What are we going to conquer next? That would be a good American man thing to say. No, the interesting thing is they paused and they worshiped. That's the way they responded in our text today. And it wasn't with just any worship. It was a reformed worship, a worship in new ways, in fresh ways, getting back to the scriptural ways of doing worship according to the Lord. Ezra had already come into town decades before Nehemiah came, and he started the reforms of worship. But now it came to kind of a height of fruition of worship together as they sought the Lord to celebrate as a corporate whole what God had done in their midst in this incredible VE day of their time. So the question for, our, for us today is, what does reformed worship look like in in a corporate group of God's people. And what does that have to do with us today? Well, I'd like to give you five marks of reformed worship in our, in our text here in Nehemiah chapter 12. And the first mark of reformed worship shows up in verses 27 and 28 with the gathering of leadership and people for worship. Look at that with me in verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Did you hear that? They're gathering people from all over the region. And in fact, I think we have a map up here. Do we have a map? Do we don't have a map? We don't have a map. We didn't have a map. There it is. That's it. Thank you for the map. 
So like, here's the city of Jerusalem. And basically the towns that, I, that were listed in the earlier reading showed that there were, they went out for all over the region to the far uh, east. They went to the north. They went to the south, retrieving all of these Levites to lead in worship this massive group of people who were gathering in Jerusalem. I'm talking tens of thousands of people. And they needed all of these guys in order to lead them in worship together as a whole. And that, an easy question that comes out of that is simply why pause? Why gather for worship? Why not getting on, get on to the next thing? After all, there could be danger. The, already, you remember, uh, guys like uh, Sanbal and Tobiah had been threatening danger and wanting to come in and invade the area. And now Jerusalem was ripe uh, for someone to attack because it was, a, once again, a stronghold. Well, the immediate reason for worship together in Nehemiah 12 is really what God had done in their midst. I mean, think about this. God had raised up a benevolent pagan king, or kings, if you think of Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, all to fund the rebuilding of the temple and of the wall. God providentially raised up a courageous leader in Nehemiah to spearhead the whole effort of rebuilding the city. God even brought the people together in unity to build the city. So they built it in 52 days, which was pretty extraordinary in itself. They had a wall. They had a city. The city was starting to bustle with life. And they were enjoying God's blessing. God pulled this off all in his sovereign providence. There is no man, not even Nehemiah, who could pull off all these details, even on a grand scale, a, a, a kind of large scale among the nations, like God could. No man could do it. So their impulse in the midst of seeing God work in these providential ways was to praise him, was to give him glory. What does that mean in our time? Well, the language of worship comes up from the, the, the um, English old word of worth-ship. Worth-ship is where you give worth to someone beyond yourself. You proclaim the worth of someone. And this is consistent with the first commandment that we get in the Ten Commandments that says... Uh, I am Lord your God who brought you out of uh, Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There's the gospel right there of how God delivered them from something and did something they could never do themselves. You shall have no other gods before me. That is his, the first command. The implication is, in considering the gospel of God's deliverance, of God's great work amongst you, make me your only God. Show that I have the most value in your life. Among all other things that you have, people you know, influences, even gods among you. You shall value me above all others, is what that commandment says. And so really, uh, showing worth to God is what worship is all about. When we come together, we are proclaiming the worth of God over all other things in life, even ourselves. But did you notice in our text how they proclaimed the worth of God? Well, they brought in all these musicians, the, all these singers. They were going to make song and, and do it together. They were singing 
with joy. You see, singing is what we do when we're happy. Singing is on our lips when we feel joy. That was the purpose of worship with all these leaders, is to corral the worship that was oozing out of their lips and put it together as they sang together and directed their worship to God. Worship of God, you see, is where we actually taste God and respond with our words. We know there in worship that God is not to be uh, thought of as a simple fleeting pleasure, but is the one in whom we find ultimate pleasure. In the book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis talks about how we all want security and happiness. Every one of us here want that. But God loves us so much that he will not allow us to live in a steady state of security and happiness in this life. That's right. He loves us so much that he won't allow it in our lives. And he, and Lewis rightly points out that were we to live in a steady state of, of happiness in this broken world, in a steady state of security in this broken world, we would be too quickly falling in love with this world. And it would pose an obstacle to our pursuit of God. And so Lewis says the following, our father refreshes us on the journey with pleasant ends, but he will not encourage us to mistake those pleasant ends for homes. Why do I tell you this? When we come to worship each week in the corporate assembly, this is meant to be a taste of home, a pleasant inn, where we encounter Christ together as a people with an eye towards home. What that means is church itself will never be heaven for you. That's right. But it will be a taste of heaven, unlike anything in this world. It's where we rise into the heavenlies and worship the one God who has saved us and who saved us in palpable ways in each one of our lives when we call on Christ as Lord. Second thing that the Jews did to reform worship was prepare for worship. Did you notice that in our text how planning and purpose was a part of the gathering of the Levites and of the crowds of of Jews who were coming together in Jerusalem at the dedication of the wall? This was going to be a big deal, this big dedication moment where they praised God for what he'd done in their lives and how this wall had actually gone up under extreme circumstances. The worship of God can be done in many places and at many times in many ways. By yourself, in times with the Lord in prayer, singing a song in the car. We could go on with even uh, doing it with your vocation. Brother Lawrence says, you know, you can... You can wash dishes to the glory of God. But here's the thing. When it comes to corporate worship, there is a distinct intentionality about what is done. That's why we do worship in a distinct order, a design. 1 Corinthians 14.40 says this, All things should be decent and in order. That's exactly what the Jews were doing in our text. They had an order 
to the corporate worship of God's people. So in other words, we're called to do worship with a design, a design according to God's will. So here's the question, what's God's design for worship? Well, that comes up in the second commandment. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is all about making God the sole object of your worship. The second commandment deals with the how of worship. And remember what the second commandment says? You shall make no graven images. What does that mean? God gives that distinct command as an effort to say, I want worship on my terms, on the way that I want it. Uh, That command is all about God's desire for how he wants to be worshipped. And why is that? Well, because we can come up with our own ways of worship. And we can plaster God's name on it, and we can call it holy. People can do that. False worship is a real thing. And I know I'm touching on a nerve here, because we in American culture inevitably lead with the question when we come to church, whether we're Christians or not, of how do I feel? How do I experience worship? I like it this way or that way. Let me be clear. It's okay to have desires. It's okay to even have preferences of the style of worship. But really, this text is teaching us something larger, which is we need to ask the first question is, how does God want worship? How can we order worship in a way that's pleasing to him first and us second, so that the chief end of man is to glorify God and secondarily enjoy him forever? Well, I suggest that there are three reference points for the design of worship, for the intentionality of order in worship. And these three reference points, I hope, will be really helpful for everyone here. Because we live in an age where preference is dominating worship contexts and churches, and the result is there are worship wars that go on. But if you have these three categories in your head from good Reformed theology... They will be very helpful to understanding what's worth fighting for and what's not. The first category is that of circumstances. I mean, uh, elements, excuse me, elements. Elements are those things that God makes clear principally in his word how, uh, of what he wants in worship. Circumstances are the cultural context and decisions we have to make. Uh, around the design of worship. Circumstances would be, what time do we have worship? Where are we going to have worship? And then, uh, what are the details to making worship happen? Forms of worship are those cultural expressions of how we worship God in our unique time and place. For example, God says, sing to the Lord, but he doesn't say how sing, other than hymns, psalms, and spiritual psalms. And so that gives a wide variety of music that you can bring to the table in the worship of God. You see how these three things are very different. Forms are what you say in your worship, where elements get to the whole heart of saying it. So, it is very important that we understand the differences between these three categories. Because... Too many times, a great mistake is made when a form is equalized to an element. 
that a certain way of doing worship is, is made equal to the value, or rather the significance of an element. The issue is that you have certain elements you have to have in worship of God, but there is freedom in form and freedom in circumstance. Now, the, the next question would be, what are the elements of worship? Well, the elements of worship are the Word of God is read, the Word of God is preached, uh, the prayers are spoken silently or together, prayers are sung. Do you know what singing is? It's a prayer. It's where you bring your heart and your voice and your whole being, body and soul to God, and express your longing, your lament in some cases, but even your joy in many cases. The songs we sing every week, the test we have for them is, can you pray this? Can you pray this as a part of your life? There's also another element that we need to take into account. That's the collection of tithes and offerings for kingdom purposes. And there are occasional elements, and those include sacraments and oaths, like you saw today. We had oaths from some people uh, taking their vows uh, to join the church. We also later on will have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Those are occasional elements. Why does this matter? Why does this matter at all? Well, because our impulse is to worship on our own terms without ever asking, what, is, what does God want in worship? Remember, worship is first and foremost for God. And when you come to worship, you ask, Lord, how can I serve you today in worship? That's why we call us sometimes a worship service. Because we come with our service to the Lord, not what I will get out of it. Third reform that shows up in our text in worship comes in verses 31 and 32. Look at that with me. It says, Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs and that gave thanks. One went to the south of the wall and the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah. And I won't read the rest of those names because it's a real challenge to do that. See that Nehemiah organized two choirs of people to lead the people in singing and worship. And what Nehemiah did, if you go back to our map, is he split up the people. I mean, we got tens of thousands of people into two groups. One that went north and went along the, the, up near the temple and along the wall, all those walls on the north side. Walking along is a huge crowd led by the, the singers and those who were leading in worship. Then there was another group that went to the south. That was Ezra's group. They went along the south and all, among all the gates, walking along the wall, praising God for what he had done. And they were all going to end up at the temple together by the end of their prayer walk and their singing, their worship walk, if you will. Nehemiah took this, these two groups and put them along the wall to praise God for what he had done in their midst. And both of the choirs that were appointed were intended to lead the people in thanksgiving for the works that God had done, for his character of how faithful he was to take care of them. What's this got to do with us today? Well, the first common question around this is, why don't we have a choir? <laughs> well, there is room, of course, at Redeemer to have a choir. And, but the really, reality of it is, actually, we already have a choir that shows up here every week. 
you all are going like, uh, I don't see a choir. Well, don't you understand that in the kingdom of God, in the New Testament church, you are the choir. We don't have professional singers who do all the worship for us like in the Old Testament. We have an assisting leadership group up here, the great worship team led by Michael and his crew, leading us as the choir. See, every week we are called to the duty of singing to the Lord ourselves to participating in worship. And this is theologically speaking what we are called to as a group. And that is why we really value at Redeemer participative worship, where there is, uh, you guys get to talk some, you sing. We try to pray even the prayers of the people, where I'll pray, I'll be silent for a few minutes, and you pray. It's meant to be participative. Practicing for our ultimate goal of heaven together. Now, why do I bring this up today as well? Well, it's really simple. You and I are being trained very well in our culture, even in religious contexts like churches, on entertainment. Entertainment's like this. I show up, I watch people perform. And then I give my applause if I'm happy. Or I give my money if I'm happy. But real church is engaging the Lord personally, yourself, by faith. Singing to him yourself with all other voices around. You know what's ironic about the entertainment model that's invading our churches even as we speak? Is it's actually a throwback to the pre-Reformation time of worship. You know what happened in pre-Reformation times with worship? People like you would show up to church, mostly because in a, in a, a kind of church and state combination, you had to show up, you might be killed. And then here's what would happen. A priest would come over and he would have this partition between him and the entire congregation. And they could see through the holes in the partition. He was doing something back there. He would, with his back to them, start singing by himself. He would start praying by himself. He would partake of the Lord's Supper by himself. And the people would watch it the entire time. Sound familiar today? I can't tell you how many churches I've been to in recent years where I go to sing and I feel like really weird because nobody's singing around me. We are called to a participative worship that they were leading the people in and reforming in their time. The same thing. Our job at Redeemer is to prepare you for singing in heaven. That's our job. Okay, I've gone to preaching. Let me keep going. Some of you are saying, okay, well, all right, Dean. I'm with you. I need to participate more. Or sometimes it's just hard to participate. I come to church hurting. And I want to tell you, it's okay to come to church hurting. Even if you can't say anything and you've got tears in your eyes and in your heart, it's okay. There are many days that that's, all, that's the best you got, just showing up. But I would encourage so many others who come and say, man, I'm just not getting a lot out of church, or I'm just not engaged. You know what? The problem's not church. The problem's your heart. And here's what I mean. Here's how to come into worship so you get something out of it. Walk in that door. Even think about it prior to walking in the door with thanksgiving. 
Think of something in your mind and your heart that God taught you in the Word of God that week about Himself and what He's done in history, or even better, come with the Word of God in your heart thinking of how God saved you this past week. When you come into worship with that attitude, I promise you, the call to worship will pop. The songs will pop. The days I come in excited about what God's done the week before, it's popping for me. The days I come in to worship myself, really lamenting and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need your grace. It's popping. That can be the same for you. We are called to a participative worship where we walk in the doors ready to thank God for ways he saved us in the past, in the present, and what's coming with Jesus in the future. That's the way to worship God when you're struggling. Let's keep going. Fourth reform in church was an ongoing one. In verses 32, it says this, And after they went, Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, blah, 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 yep. And certain of the priests, sons with trumpets, Zechariah, they keep going and on and on. They went up and straight to them to the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. What's going on here? All these names that I even struggle to say again and again have a purpose. They are inspired scripture. The names point out in particular the priests, and if you go back to earlier in the chapter, the chief priests who were a key part of the worship of that time. And you're thinking, why in the world are we getting all these names? I mean, come on, what's up with that? Well, the answer is when you have chief priests like Jeshua, which, by the way, is translated in in New Testament Jesus, Joachim and Eliashab, All of them in their names are there to show one thing, a continuity of leadership in the priesthood. The right guys were in the right place leading the people in right worship. What's that got to do with us today? Well, some of you may be thinking, well, we don't have priests today, do we? We're, you know, kind of Presbyterian reform folks. We're kind of against the whole priest thing. And I would say, yes, we do have priests. Yes, we do. You ready for this? Jesus Christ is our priest. Christ is the Son of God who came and taught just like a priest, the people, and teaches you and me from his word how we might follow him and make him our sole and ultimate source of satisfaction. Jesus was the unique priest who came from God and taught well, more than taught, gave his life as a sacrifice for us. He sacrificed himself. And he is also the priest who sits at the right hand of God the Father right now, praying for you and for us and enjoying our worship when we listen to him and we seek him in prayer. Jesus is the priest who oversees the church with continuity forever. He is the one who gives us life as Lord over all. Similarly, for those who are in Christ, that is, you've received Christ by faith, you've been following him, you are among the priesthood of believers. In fact, 1 
First Peter 2 calls us a kingdom of priests. All of us here bring our worship every week. And as Romans 12 says, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. You see, we have the blessing of a Christ who offers forgiveness, grace, so that we can even give our lives away to him. Now, the question for all of us here today is where do you go for a priest? When you're hurting, when you're wondering about truth, when you're struggling with your sense of guilt and angst, where do you go? Do you go to other people and talk it out with them? Not bad. Could be a really good thing. Do you go to TV? That's my personal favorite. Just go hide, not think. Do you go to other things? Christ says, let me be your priest. Let me meet you right here. In your hardship and your trials, wherever you are right now, he's here to meet you. That's what the gospel says about what Christ offers. That's why if you're not a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to ask, who is your priest? Because you're going to somebody or something to gain life when you're struggling. Who or what is that? And turn away from that. And follow the Christ who can fill your heart. Fifth and final reform from Nehemiah comes in verse 30 of our text. Verse 30, what does that say? Verse 30 says, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates of the wall. Notice how the priests purified themselves. And the people, even the wall. What's purification about in Scripture? Well, in worldly religions, the comparative time of that, of the, of the Bible, purification was ceremonial. It was outwardly based so that you look good. But in Christianity, it's very different. Christianity is a matter of the heart. And purification is from the inside out so that we become good. It begins with our moral and ethical state before God and seeks Him with an undivided heart for forgiveness, for new life, for the Spirit, for the comfort of God. Purity of heart means there's no conflict of loyalties with God. Your desire is to please Him ultimately. To do so requires one thing of us, Death. Yeah, isn't that exciting? <laughs> you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus in faith and hope and love. And the beauty of purifying yourself before God is that Jesus himself says that this life of purity of heart has its benefits. Think of what he says in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's a promise. That's a promise that purity of heart means we don't just give up things and get nothing out of it. There's something waiting for us. Someone we get to encounter personally. In fact, 
1 John 3 talks about how hope and purity are tied together. Listen to what 1 John 3 says. It says, Everyone who hopes in Christ purifies himself as Christ is pure. Purification is always grounded in hope, guys. You'll be willing to give up something now with the hope that you're going to see God in eternity, face to face with Christ. One day we will be in heaven. Whereas Jonathan Edwards says, we will encounter abundant, soul-shattering delight. We're not all convinced of that. Because there are delights we taste in this world. But I would submit to you that all the delights, even the good things you taste in this life, all are mere pointers, echoes, shadows of what is to come. When you're with God face to face. When you see God in his beauty and glory, it will be so ravishing, you will not want to step away. Again, as Edwards says, uh, when we are in heaven with God, face to face, seeing Christ, we will spend eternity worshiping him, uh, considering all he's done in history, who he is, what he's done in our own personal lives. We'll just go on and on forever doing this. You're thinking, Okay, I get bored doing that after an hour at church. No, no, you don't understand. When you're with the God of the universe and you see him face to face, you'll see a beauty that is so enamoring, you'll come back for more and for more, and you'll never exhaust discovering more about an infinite God. It never ends. The wonders of seeing him. Here's what's beautiful about that. In this life... Joy and happiness, security has a ceiling. It always hits something and we get stuck because we live in a broken world. But then in a new heavens, new earth with a resurrected body, even in heaven prior to resurrection, blessings and security is merely a floor. It's only straight up with wonders and glory. In short, when you prepare for worship... When you engage and gather for worship, when you're even seeking God anew in worship by participating in the process actively, you are setting your hearts on things above, on things that matter forever. And that sets everything else in place for how we live in this world and how we carry out our daily duties with holiness and with life. This past Friday night, an amazing thing happened. Sean Smith of the York Revolution Independent Baseball Team hit a game-tying home run. It was game three of the Atlantic League playoffs, and the people stood and screamed with joy as he did this. As Sean Smith made his way around the bases, he watched the ball go out. And as he was walking, uh, kind of trotting onto first base, he hit it in an awkward way. And his knee jerked and it popped. He crumbled to the ground. In the midst of people's screams of joy, you could hear him screaming in pain. The people watched in horror as this guy who'd just been a hero was crumpled on the ground. And the way the rules go in baseball, the guy who hits the home run, the guy who hits the base, uh, uh, the base hit has got to run it out. 
Nobody can help him. Slowly, Sean Smith got up. And you could see the pain on his face on Friday night. But he started to hop. Slowly but surely hop because he couldn't walk on that leg. And slowly but surely, he made his way around the bases. Second base, he hopped and hit the base. He started to get a little momentum hopping. He made his way around to third base. And when he got around to third base, the whole crowd started going crazy, more than when he even hit the home run. Everybody was screaming. And there at the end, at home plate, every one of his teammates awaited him. And he hopped into home plate and collapsed in the arms of his teammates who carried him back to the dugout. This is a picture of what worship is for us. Every week, we cheer on our wounded hero, Jesus Christ. We cheer on the one who has saved us, even with scars in his hands and feet. Jesus calls you and I today to follow him in worship and to engage him as a people together. And now we step into the next piece of worship together as we go to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your grace and your, and your kindness, and we ask you today that you and your mercies would lead us as a body even into further worship right now. Give us voices to sing as we consider our wounded hero on a cross and resurrected, sitting at the right hand of you, Father God. Give us eyes for this kind of worship that we might celebrate in a way that's even heard around the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.